0: G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Docker, and I've got Lionel Bernie here joining me this week to introduce this week's episode. G'day, Lionel. How you doing, mate?
1: I'm good, thanks, Mitch. I'm uh, I'm out of quarantine after my trip to the Tour de France. I had two weeks in which I wasn't allowed to leave the house, and uh, yeah, I, it was uh, it was a long two weeks, I have to say. But um, I'm free now, free as a bird.
0: Well, good, mate. You did you did tell me that there was a possibility that you were going to go to the Giro, and then I thought about it, and I was like, oh, hang on, that's another two weeks quarantine after that as well and then the Vuelta another two weeks so it's probably maybe changed your decision about that.
1: It has a bit yeah but I gather you are off to Spain for well you're in Spain anyway but you're off to uh, the Vuelta in a couple of weeks time is that right that's how things stand at the moment?
0: That's right yeah so it's going to be the last race of the year and it's one of my favorites I've sort of clicked ticked that one off a few times before it's going to be a hell of a lot different this time no heat and more or less running into uh, Christmas Eve. But nevertheless, it's another race, and I'm looking forward to getting a big race in my legs before this season finally finishes. But um, before we get going, I have to introduce this episode. I've got Dr. Kevin Sprouse, who's the team or the head team doctor on EF Education First. He's an American, a great guy, and it's so sort of be great to sit back and have a chat to him about the ins and outs of the daily job of a team doctor. But also, I wanted to get some tips off him, some tricks of the trade. So I got everyone to send some questions in and I formulated sort of some questions myself. So I hope you enjoy this one, guys. Sit back and enjoy Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Well, welcome everyone, Life in the Peloton, and this time I've got the team doctor Kevin Sprouse, a good friend of mine actually as well. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Hey Mitch, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Mate, I've been very impressed. I've been listening to your podcast the last few weeks. And it's been like we haven't seen each other all year. You've brought out a podcast over the lockdown. And the best part about it was I could just sit back, listen to your voice. And it feels like we haven't missed each other for however long it's been.
2: Well, likewise. you know, Maybe I sit back and listen to yours a little bit. You listen to mine. It, it has been weird, the fact that you know I've been with the team for a while now. And never have I been away from racing and away from you guys for such a period of time. Living in the US, I'm not able to get over we have had doctors at the races but um, I've not been able to be there and that's been really strange for me so it's good to talk to you face to face kind of
0: well let's get into it today we're going to talk all about your job and what what happens on on the race because I think what I try and do in this podcast is just trying into all the little different jobs that everyone does aside from the cyclists of course because I just find it so fascinating that there's so many little different jobs that no one knows about and even myself don't 100% know exactly what your whole job is. So to start off, you're the team doctor with us on the World Tour team. You started back with a development team of Slipstream back in 2010 and then merged across into this team, which was Chipotle, then became Cannondale, which is now EF. What I want you to do is just tell us a little bit about your background, maybe blow out the myths of what a team doctor is on a World Tour team and what your story is, how you've come to doing this
2: job today. Yeah, so my background is pretty varied. Uh, I did undergraduate studies in exercise science, then went to medical school, and every country trains doctors a little differently, but the way it is in the US, you go to medical school, and then you go do uh, specialty training called residency. And so I did a residency in emergency medicine, and then I went back and did a subspecialty fellowship training in sports medicine. Mm. And so my background is exercise physiology, emergency medicine and sports medicine, which is fairly comprehensive when it comes to being on the road with you guys.
0: Was there always that desire to get on the road as a cycling? Why cycling? What's your
2: background there? Yeah, so I got into cycling while I was doing my, uh, actually in medical school. Uh, I did a little bit of triathlon before going to medical school. And then in medical school, it's a four year process in the US. And after two years, I was fat. I mean, I was, it was not pretty. I weighed about, 100 and, about 105 kilo, and I just sat around and studied all the time. And a couple of my professors came to me and a couple of the other guys who had been active and kind of let it slip, and just basically told us to get off our asses and come on, we were, we were going on a bike ride the next day. And they got us back on our bikes, mountain biking, road riding. As my medical career proceeded, when I was doing residency, I was actually watching the Tour de France one day, just, you know, as a fan mm. from the TV. And they did an interview on the guy who had my position in this team before oh. me. Princess Stefan was our head doctor uh, before I was. And uh, it talked about his background. And I actually hopped on the website, the team website. It had his email on there. I emailed him and I was like, how in the world did you get this job? This sounds so cool. <laughs> and so from, th- from that point on, I kind of said it in my head that it would be very cool to do this although I didn't think I'd get the chance because lots of people are trying but I was kind of like you know if I can at least kind of move that direction something fun will happen out of that. What did it appeal to you just from that one interview that made you
0: think you know I want to do this obviously there was a sporting side you were doing a bit of riding yourself but why not go down another sporting line you know say you know american football or even baseball or whatever that is you could be around home was it the travel was it to the
2: excitement of racing did you know a whole lot about the job from just that one interview no no i didn't know yeah um i think what drew me to it was two things one you've got when you're watching the tour de france the travel just looks amazing and romantic and you're in these incredible places they don't show the little the crappy curiad hotel that you're staying in the terrible food the way it really plays out um, i mean it's an amazing thing to do but you definitely get a, a colored picture of it but there was that aspect of it and then there was the whole human performance side mm. and coming from exercise science that just fascinated me so you guys in cycling probably have the most objective data around your performance mm. uh, there's power meters heart rate meters we've got GPS data. In other sports, that's coming along, but it's not quite to the same degree. And so having that background, I had a natural curiosity in the performance side of it. And quite honestly, in that interview with Prentice, you know, the team, this slipstream program, what's now EF, had just come out into the world tour and was taking that step to do it in a clean way. Mm. Not that everybody else wasn't clean. We know there was plenty of doping and everything else, but they were just forthright with they're gonna do it clean and see what happened. And that very much appealed to me too, because I wouldn't have any interest in doing it otherwise. Mm. And so that trifecta of interesting travel, amazing performance medicine, and knowing that there wouldn't be some untoward pressure on me to do stuff I wouldn't feel comfortable, um, it just sounded like a fantastic possibility.
0: Well, let's get to the actual reality of it. Yeah. I, I, w- I want you to explain to everyone now now that you 've got the job now that you 've had some you know many years in the job, getting used to it, move to the te- the head doctor what's the day to day of your job like yeah. in terms of when you 're on the race day to day but when also when you're back home because we have a lot of communication there's quite a lot of
2: organizing looking at certain tests. run me through what it is you do yeah, so if we look at it kind of on a calendar basis in the early season there's a bunch of tests that you guys have to do as mandated by the UCI stuff that we would be doing likely anyway, but Mm. it's, it's a requirement that we, we have to take. So you're doing cardiac tests, you're doing blood work, pretty extensive panels of blood work that all gets fed back to me in my office. I've got a guy who works for me, who one of his, side jobs I've assigned to him is he puts it all into a system that, that follows all this blood work and trends it. And you can imagine with you know, 28 or 30 riders, that's an extensive amount of information that comes flowing in mm. on top of helping you plan and schedule these tests often. So early season, we're compiling all that Q1, that first quarter data that we have to get. Mm. And then somewhere in there, there's usually a training camp mm. where I and or one of the other doctors meets individually with each of you. And just goes over a medical history, anything, you know, since we last saw you, new riders get a little extra time, but just as you would with your doctor back home, just kind of trying to get a feel for what medical issues you're dealing with, if any, um, past injuries, family history, all that stuff. Once we get out on the road, the day to day looks a little different, right? So that's, that's more of the clerical stuff that happens away from races. I mentioned that that was first quarter testing. We do quarterly testing for the UCI. Um, fourth quarter testing is due now. Don't forget. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Actually, yeah. <laughs> some some people are better at remembering to do that than others. But again, you know, so every quarter we've got this flow of information that comes in from you guys doing your testing, and we have to compile that, look at trends, make sure nothing looks uh, worrisome. First and foremost, from a health standpoint, but also just from a in terms of supporting performance, you know. Little things like you know, vitamin D or iron levels, we say little, but it's a big deal when you're doing what you guys are doing. So you know, we, we try to keep an eye on all that stuff.
0: Before you go on, just just talk about these quarterly blood tests, because I think this is quite interesting anyway for me, that you're just, one thing just alerted me there, you've got the general range of you know a healthy person. I think that's important that we are inside that range, obviously, first. But one thing that I have I guess I always look for is to be at the very top of a certain range, you know, whether it's an iron level or – because that's the cycling side, I mean, the professional sports side of things. If I can have it in that range, I want to be pushing the very limit of it. You know, is that – when you said then you want to be supporting us for the performance, is that something how you look at the range, for for instance – we're in a healthy range for a normal human being, but we want to see you at the very top of that range, whatever that may be, or at the very bottom,
2: say. Yes. So w- when we look the various metrics that we gather from, from blood work, the ranges that we set, yeah, first and foremost, there's kind of a very wide range that says, are you diseased or not? Yeah, right? okay. Is there a medical problem? But then we tighten that based on the literature to know where um, performance is optimised. So with iron, for instance, if your ferritin level is 10, that's problematic across the board. Mm. But if it's 30, you're not diseased, but you're probably not gonna support the level of training and um, just kind of exercise load that you guys put on yourselves. So then we're looking for considerably higher levels. Mm. And with you guys, there's a lot of that, you know, moving the goalposts, so to speak, making sure that we get you in a place that is suitable for what you're attempting to do. Now, that doesn't always mean it's different than the standard range. Sometimes it's not. Um, And it doesn't always mean more is better. You know, There's Mm. a, a curve. So we try to figure out where on that curve we want you guys to, first and foremost, keep you healthy through the season. Because in my opinion, it's really about resilience. You guys race so many days. Sometimes, even with training load, you can go over just a little bit and maybe harvest a little bit of increased performance but then you sacrifice a lot beyond that because you mm. can't keep that up. And so it's almost, for the majority of the season, it's probably best to be at about 95 to 98% and be able to turn it up when you need it and then back back off again. So mm. we wanna support that 95%, so to speak, that rate that's maintainable through the year. And what are some common things that you would say for us, like,
0: are there a, a few things that are pretty commonly um, needing assessment or, or help with, like for instance, you mentioned ferritin. That's something that for me is often lower because I'm getting fatigued, I'm going to altitude, I'm not absorbing the iron levels that I need to, to keep that up. That's just one thing for me. Is that a common thing between all of us? Are you seeing common trends between cyclists or is it really just a, a mixed
2: bag when it comes to pro cyclists? It's a mixed bag, but there are themes. So there, there are kind of groups that we see people fall into, and having lower iron levels is fairly common. Mm. Um, now, not so low that it's a massive problem, but low enough that we know we need to stay on top of supplementation. Mm. You know, making sure that your diet is rich in iron and that maybe you're taking an iron supplement as well. Nothing crazy, mm. but just knowing that it's there, because if we get behind on that and iron dwindles, it's really difficult to supplement and bring that up during the season when training load is high. Mm. We want to make sure that we kind of have you go into the season in a good place and just maintain through the year. It's not more is better, it's just keeping you in a, in a reasonable range. Vitamin D is another one mm. that you guys probably hear us harp about um, that it seems like it's a minor thing, but vitamin D is important for muscle function, muscle recovery, immunity, which has been very important this year. Um, and it's important really any year because the risk of colds and upper respiratory stuff during the season is fairly high. So things like that that we keep an eye on. It's not super sexy, but it's it's the basics, the foundational stuff. Is that something that
0: gets you excited when you see a good lot of um, blood work come in and you're like, Oh, wow, this guy is, you know, well-tuned. You know, this guy's got a good engine. Like it doesn't necessarily replicate to what he does on the bike but you know that is a good machine there do you like seeing that stuff
2: i, I do and i think that probably makes me kind of a geek but <laughs> it's it's fascinating to me and then even more than just a snapshot of one time a uh, one panel of blood work but seeing somebody's play out over the year mm-hmm. or even a few years um that really fascinates me
0: what about on the other side when you just see like whoa this thing's like a bloody rusted out old car and you see them you know right at the front of the race You're like
2: amazing sure yeah we're often reminded that winning and losing isn't just about the numbers on Mm. blood work or the numbers on your power meter or anything else like there's a lot that goes in there and so i've learned with all of my athletes cycling or otherwise to tell them the, the stuff that we're doing around you know diet and nutrition and recovery and everything that might make those numbers look better on paper the goal is really to make it so that your training can fall on the firmest foundation possible. So that the work you put in is going to get you the most benefit. Not that you're bound by you know, your iron level or your power meter numbers that week. It's, it's so much more holistic, isn't quite the right word, but it, it, it draws on so many more aspects than that. But unless you have those basics really tuned up, then you're leaving some performance on the table. That's what we want to make sure. And then like I said, make sure that you have a season that is as consistent as possible. Not mm-hmm. that you have a couple of shining moments and then the rest is kind of a struggle. It's uh, it's about keeping you healthy and primed for the whole year. Shoot shoot at du peloton, cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
1: That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting Mitch's conversation with Dr. Kevin Sprouse to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel now have you wanted to learn a second language or another language uh, whether it be french or spanish or german or italian or one of the 14 languages that you can learn using Babbel? well if you'd like to learn a language Babbel is offering six months free with a purchase of a six month subscription if you use the promo code cycle so what is Babbel? well basically it's a language teacher in your pocket uh, you can use it on your phone or on a computer and uh, as you go through the course ticking off the short daily lessons which last about 10 or 15 minutes um, you can sync across different devices so you're if you find you've got 10 15 minute wait for a train and you want to quickly do a, a language lesson um, you can just pull out your phone and uh, and get stuck in and babble uses real life conversations to teach you the language um, uh, because the Different lessons have been designed by real people, and so you get started using phrases and uh, simulating situations that you would actually find yourself in. The technology also helps you work on your pronunciation, something that I certainly need to work on. Uh, the speech recognition technology helps you improve by repeating back to your device and uh, giving you the the thumbs up if you got the pronunciation right, and uh, well, giving you another go if you didn't. Now, the teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. And as I say, it's available as an app or online. And if you would like to uh, learn one of those 14 languages, go to babbel.co.uk slash play. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code cycle the details are in the show notes too now back to mitch and dr kevin sprouse
0: let's go back to the day-to-day because you I i think this is quite interesting for me and this is what i get to see what you do Um, Run me through, once you get to the
2: race, how how does it go from there? What's your mindset there? Yeah, so if we look at a day at the race, I usually wake up pretty early, uh, a good bit earlier than you guys, because I like to get a run in. Mm. And so I'll start my day, I'll go for a run, and I need to be back at the hotel before uh, any random testing might happen, right? So on a race. Yeah,
0: right, that is early then.
2: It is, and this is something I've learned through the years, right? you know at any at any given race the testers may or may not show up in the morning they usually show up within a given time window not always but you, you can kind of guess when they're going to be there seven to nine somewhere in there seven a.m to nine a.m so i'll often go for a run at you know five forty-five or six and then come back just so that if that happens i can be there to accompany you guys mm-hmm. uh, which is just kind of standard that that's what happens across all teams, that the doctor accompanies you. You don't need us there typically, but it's just kind of the way it, the way it works out. So I'll go for a run, uh, be around the hotel, have some breakfast, and oftentimes just kind of be around while you guys are waking up. Sometimes that's in the breakfast room, sometimes I'll just walk through a couple times. My goal is always to be accessible without being on top of you guys. Mm. That if you need me, I'm either you know, in the room down the hall, like, you know, where I am, I'm, I'm very easily found. Um, but that I'm not just like constantly asking, are you okay? Are you okay? Mm, (laughs) Because I think that gets just as annoying and in your head. So my morning will kind of be like that. I'll ride, uh, to the race with you guys on the bus most of the time, again, with that in mind, so that if there are some conversations to be had, you know, if the knee's bothering you a little, your digestion's off, whatever, I'm right there, but I'm also not like, in your face about it. You just have to kind of walk down the aisle of the bus and hmm. ask me a question. Um, and then around the start of the race, it's kind of the same, you know, I don't, I don't run off to, you know, I may go to the coffee shop, grab, grab a coffee or, well, in a pre-COVID world, I don't know how it goes <laughs> now, but, you know, go grab a coffee or, or whatever, then come back and just kind of be around. And a lot of times questions from you guys just happen organically during that time, conversations around, uh, nutrition for the day, uh, bothersome back—you uh, know, whatever the issue is. Um, just before you go and then it's on off to
0: the races, yeah. Just before yeah. you go on to the race, I was just thinking. Then that's a, this is quite a this is quite a special thing that you've picked up along the way because quite a lot of staff and particularly doctors I've worked with don't necessarily get that fact that being around accessible but not in your face is a very very special thing to have because often if you don't see the doctor sometimes it's just a bit too hard it sounds weird to just reach out and find them or check on something because you haven't seen them it's like oh, i'll just deal with it and by then yeah. by the time you get sick it's too late you're out of the race you've missed that window so i think that's a very special thing that you've cotton cottoned on to but what i was just thinking then i don't know whether this is you can answer it on both sides do you find now that because you're accessible that People may reach out to you when they don't necessarily need it, looking for an excuse, looking for, and you know, those, those types, you get them in all walks of life where yeah. they're not really crook, but they just want a bit of love and you know what it is. So there's that side to it, but then there's also the other side. Have you seen it when you've been in that situation, you've caught something before it's really gone on and thank
2: God you were there. Yeah, both for sure. Um, and I, I think it's a real balance. And I, I don't always get it right in terms of being present versus not in your face versus find it but like it's it's a moving target mm. and and I try um, but I do think there are downsides to being too present yeah and I've heard that from other doctors like they try to actually be a little more distant and there's downsides to being right there in your face and you're kind of pinching you and listening to your lungs all the time and you know there's a very old school European thought process within cycling where the doctors are just kind of constantly running up and measuring you for different things, right? Like like weighing mm. your food and pinching your side to see if you're getting fat and all that stuff.
0: <laughs> um,
2: so the spectrum is big in terms of how people address it. You know, There's definitely been some times where I've picked up on things because I was around or, or had, like you mentioned, somebody just come to me probably a little sooner than they would have otherwise with something that was consequential. Um, and that's the ideal, like that's yeah. what we want. There's definitely times I think where some people either just need an ear to kind of not not lay an excuse on, but there's certain things you can tell the doctor that you can 't tell the director sure right so for me oftentimes i 'll sit and i 'll listen to some some problems that somebody 's having, and you know it it may not be the kind of thing where like you guys know i'm i 'm caring but i, I don't think i 'm a pushover mm. like if you know, I'm going to tell you. Well, you know that that kind of sucks, but I think you can ride through that one today, and you know, come back to the car if you need anything. I'll be there. I think I think as doctors, we sit in kind of a special spot there, where there's a little bit of confidentiality, a little bit of um, we're a bit removed from the competitive aspect, I guess. The way that everybody else is very much into your how you're going to perform that day, maybe we're a little bit of a safer spot. I don't know. Mm,
0: no, it's it's interesting. That's definitely true, and I especially I have that relationship with you just because I think. For me, it's got a lot to do with your physical appearance, actually. I was just thinking about it now as I look at you (laughs) down the computer is that you're a fit-looking guy. You take care of yourself. So for me, to ask someone who's completely out of shape or very old or something like that, there's that knowledge side of it, but I get the relationship with you is that whatever you're doing looks good, you know. What what do you got for me type feel, you know. Like that's how I like to talk to you is like... And I think that comes along... Uh, it goes a long way and then also like you said you've got to have that listening ear that trust and also that you've got to have that ability to say i'm not i'm not buying that mate because that also creates respect too um i think
2: yeah once someone pulls you up and you respect them you you respect that too and you go on ultimately my job is to get you guys out there on the bike and doing what your profession is Mm -hmm. right i mean and and sometimes that that's going to be a hard day and it may be when you're not perfectly tuned up to do it, but it's totally safe to go out there and contribute what you can. And that sometimes is a hard distinction to make, but one that hopefully you all know that when I make that distinction, and say, no, you can ride with this and I think you need to today, that it's with your best interest in mind. It's not always easy but for you, but it's what has to happen that day sometimes.
0: Let's go back to what you're talking about now. You're about to step into the car and follow the race. Run me through mm-hmm. what that what that is like for you as a fan and as a doctor
2: yeah so um as a fan i would say the first couple races for sure it was just exhilarating and i tried <laughs> to hide that tried to be i mean i remember going to the tour de swiss which was my first race 2011 first race on the world tour and it was um guys that i ended up working with for years later but that i'd only seen on tv until that point point. and so you know i knew i was a little bit starstruck but i knew i couldn't let that show like i had to separate being a professional from being a fan but what was nice is when i was in the car i could kind of be a fan right because yeah. you got the, the team was on the road and i could sit back and like look at the bikes and you know <laughs> but you could try to catch a glimpse of the race <laughs> you couldn't make reactions on the car like whoa look at that you know you couldn't do yeah. stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> no i had to be totally cool <laughs> now there's much less of that because i've spent just so much time in the car mm. uh, that I won't say there's none of it. I mean, there's still you know, going up Alpe d'Huez or um, going across the cobbles in Roubaix. There, there's times that are just amazing. Mm. And to, I, I'd switch into total fan mode, absolutely. But you even see it in some of the directors. Mm. Um, we hit these iconic places in Europe, and the race is being defined at the moment. And you can see some of these guys, I mean, they're very much doing what they need to do for their work, But you can tell that it's like a little different than it was 10k ago and that's fun cool so there's that component but the majority of the time spent in the car is it's really boring um Mm. and i don't mean that in a bad way that's kind of a good thing you know i always joke at these races if my week or two weeks with you guys is pretty insignificant you know if i'm not doing a whole lot that usually means the team's doing really well yeah so i'm fine with it being boring and and i can kind of watch a little bit of the race and talk to charlie or one ma or whoever's driving and, and we have a good time, but it's pretty relaxed most of the time. All right. Well then tell me about when it suddenly
0: doesn't get relaxed and there's been a crash on the road. How do you approach that? Because I, one team doctor I used to have in Mitchelton, um, he was an ER doctor and he was, he was very good at one of his best skills, I think, was when we had a crash. And you were freaking out. You are all full of emotion. His name is Serge. He used to come up and he'd just make you feel calm. He'd been in that situation a million yeah. times. And that's something I really loved about him is that he just, nothing could phase him because a cycling crash was just like, end, you know? So run me through yeah. what happens to you when, when we pull up in the cars and what happens when,
2: when we all go down? I will say Serge is great, by the way. He mm. used to work with this team. That's right. Um, he did, yeah. No, I'd say as you said, it suddenly becomes stressful. You know, we may be mid-bite of a sandwich and telling a joke and then all of a sudden it's on, right? There's been a crash or whatever's happened. So for me, I do think having a background in emergency medicine is helpful because as a you know, if I'm mid-bite of a sandwich, I'm not gonna throw my sandwich down. I'm gonna wrap it up as the car pulls up, like grab my bag, like it's mm. all very... You try to stay calm. They, mm. they teach you in medicine, um, there's something called a code, in in the u.s which is when somebody in the hospital has lost their vital signs they've died and you've got to go do cpr they say never run to a code because you get there you're short of breath you can't think your heart's pounding um and i take a little bit of the same approach like we pull up i'm going to get my bag calmly but quickly move to wherever you guys are first see if we're in it because we don't ever know until Mm. we get there whether we have riders down but if we get there you know i'll usually either wait in the car and the mechanical signal for the doctor to come out because we don't want everybody on the road. Or if we know from the TV or something that one of you guys is down, it looks like you need us, then it's straight to you guys. And then it's kind of the same way we do with any car accident or anything else. It's big picture, Like yeah. right? You don't want to run in and just focus on what's going on. It's big picture where the car is coming from, are there still bikes coming, who else is down? You know, is, is the ambulance trying to get through? Is the is the scene safe, so to speak, as I come up on you? And then then we can kind of focus in.
0: Is it difficult not to, just hearing you say that, is it difficult not to get um, sidetracked by the race and the pressure that maybe the rider's putting on you or maybe the director or maybe another director? Come on, get him back in the race, whatever. The mechanic's getting the bike ready. You're like, hang on, big picture here. Is that difficult not to get sidetracked by that?
2: It is difficult, mm. for sure. I think um, the more I've done it, the less difficult it's become because... I'm more comfortable with it Mm. early on. That was, that was very difficult. Now I feel very comfortable with kind of knowing what pace is appropriate. You know, if we need 10 more seconds to just make sure the rider's okay, I'm going to take that 10 seconds. And I'm not usually very gruff or confrontational, but I can be when I need to be. Mm. And that's the kind of thing where uh, uh, there's been one or two times where I've, just quickly laid down the law and said, no, this, this is what's happening for the next 10 seconds, back off. Everybody's goals are the same, right? Even the directors who are pushing to maybe get you back on the bike or whatever else, it's not for your harm, it's for your good in the race, mm. right? They just have a different take on it. And so when we get back together, we realize everybody had the same goal, your health and your performance in that order. But because of where we come from, we address it differently.
0: Has there been situations where you've looked back on it and gone, I wish I'd taken a little bit more time there, back in the beginning maybe when you felt a little bit intimidated?
2: For sure, for sure. And I would say there's probably even been some recently, I can't think off the cuff what those are, but the point being, me or, nor anybody else, we're never gonna master this. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a work in progress and every situation is different. So whether it's in the hospital or on the side of the road, there's always things that you can debrief and say, OK, maybe I could have done that a little better or this a little better. When you stop having that approach to it and think, oh, yeah, I nailed it every time, that's when it gets dangerous. That's when it gets to be that, that hubris. You're flying too close to the sun when that's the case.
0: Well moving forward and this is I think the most common injury in cycling and I do want to ask you what you think the most common is and you can tell me now but I think gravel rash is obviously every time we go down it's almost impossible not to have your hip done, your elbow. You know shoulder probably as well yeah when we get back to the bus post crash you know if you if you couldn't finish the race you get taken away in an ambulance normally so that's another situation but i'm talking about we jump back on the bike we get to the finish of the race and now we're in i call it the traveling hospital if you've crashed you're in the back of the bus Mm -hmm. and the doctor opens up his little bag of the necessities to try and fix you run me through what that's like for you and the first time that sort of happened was it funny for you doing that or is it just sort of like you know what that's just what i have to do
2: oh no no, no. it's it's fine i mean it's right. uh yeah it's very much part and parcel of the job and i mean how many times have you just shredded your hip most of you guys have scar on top of scar on top of scar
0: i i wouldn't every I, like, that's what i said literally every time i crash there's no way you don't do your hip it's almost impossible yeah. not to scratch your hip so however
2: many crashes i've had is how many hip scars my 10 year old is already starting to have like those permanent dark spots on <laughs> on either hip from crashing it's just it comes with the territory no for me first and foremost it's looking for any injury that's worse than just that what you call gravel rash we call road rash in the u.s but because that's fairly superficial it hurts it sucks we're going to deal with it but i want to make sure that there's not a chipped bone underneath a laceration that needs sutures or sewing you know, anything else going a head injury that may be hiding. We may be focused on the hip, but actually mm. your head hit pretty hard. So once we've kind of handled or at least assessed some potentially more serious issues, then it's a matter of getting that rash just cleaned up. I mean, first and foremost, you got to get the, the gravel and the dirt out of there. <laughs> there's no perfect way. In fact, there's no perfect way to handle road rash. You'll, you'll find if you get five doctors in a room and ask, what the best way to handle this is you'll probably get six answers like there's we just don't have the perfect answer Um, but getting it clean is hands down all of us will say you got to get it clean first Mm -hmm. so for me we've got showers on the bus i will typically hand you guys a surgical scrub that has uh, chlorhexidine and a, a little sponge on it chlorhexidine is a antiseptic cleaner what we use before we go in to operate and just have you get after it in the shower there's no use me coming in there with you there's no use me scrubbing anything most of you guys are pretty used to doing it at this point and quite honestly do a really good job
0: well you learn so, to interrupt you there you learn the hard way yeah. because the first few times you do it you do it like a bit of a pussy and you don't really scrub it that hard you're like yeah, yeah that's clean and then you come out and the doctor goes now I'm gonna have to clean it and after the first right. time that happens the next time you go I'm cleaning the hell out of that myself yes
2: exactly Exactly. And it actually hurts less the, the closer in time that you do it to the injury. Oh. So like if you were to get right up and just scrub it, it probably wouldn't hurt that much because all those nerve endings are deadened. And I mean, it already hurts, but it wouldn't hurt worse. And so the sooner you can get in the bus, scrub that thing out and be done with it, the better. Um, now to be fair, you've probably been among the group that stands just outside the shower and kind of chuckles as we hear the guy and <laughs> they're just cussing and screaming, <laughs> but it just is what it is, and we've all been through it, you know. I mean, even me as a doctor, being a, a, a recreational cyclist, like I've done it too. It sucks, it's going to be what it's going to be, but you get it clean, and then assuming it doesn't need sutures or anything like that, it's a thin layer of antibiotic ointment, a covering, and you know, that can be, that can be uh, like a Telfa nonstick bandage. Um, it can be a much more expensive plastic surgery or dermatologic type thing. There's no evidence that any of the more expensive stuff really helps mm-hmm. speed or increase healing time. So we go with, you know, the, I won't say basic, but just kind of the nonstick bandage, antibiotic cream, tape on top of it, and then usually leave that for 24 hours We'll change it, leave it again for 24 hours. Then we start to let it air out because eventually if you just let it stay moist, it's not going to heal nearly as quickly. But we have to balance that against you need to sleep. And if we leave it open, it sticks to the sheets and all that keeps you awake. Um, You need to be able to ride. And if it's getting really dry and tight, that can be bothersome on the bike. So I'd say everybody's course timeline is a little different, but that's the nuts and bolts of it is... Tell me about this this idea, and I've done both. I've I've
0: done exactly what you've talked about there, and probably stick to that more recently. But in the past, I also used to use a thing called Opsite, which is more or less like a plastic covering that goes over the, the wound, and inside all this mucus pus builds up in there. And miraculously enough, you know, I changed it probably ten percent less than you know the other one every every five days or so. And it was so weird that every time I pulled it off, it was healing under this fluid. And that's what I found so bizarre is, do you do you believe in that sort of healing process?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, and, and I do think it works. It delays healing a bit ah. because of it, but it will still heal for sure. And depending on the scenario, that may be a good way to go. But just for every crash, I don't think it necessarily makes sense. A lot of times... That first 48 hours is rough, and then if we can get it dried out a little bit and healing out, you guys almost don't notice it. Now, not the real deep ones, but the ones that are just kind of run-of-the-mill. We just got to get you through two days, and then you're kind of you're good to go. That type of treatment can drag out, and so it's you, it can drag out the healing. So then it's just a matter of picking and choosing which which way to treat which injury, and that's where it's a little bit of a black art, I guess. I mean, there's no there's no accepted way to do that. We just do it based on our experience and history. So just
0: say a guy has actually got to the end of the race and you've assessed the injuries. There's nothing there that is a definite no, for instance, like broken leg or you know a serious concussion, but it's, it's gray, it's yeah. border. And the rider's not too sure to go ahead. The director obviously wants him, or the team wants him to go ahead. Who does that decision come back and lay
2: on? Is that your decision or is it a combination? Where does, where does that go? The the final decision on our team is up to the doctor. That said, I can't think of but maybe one or two instances where I've just laid down the law and said, this is what's happening. I try to make that a much more shared decision. And oftentimes, say it's like this, there, somebody crashes 30K from the finish. They don't have a concussion, don't have anything broken, but they're pretty banged up. I will often try to get them to the finish, mm. get them to ride to the finish and just say, look, If you can make the time cut, then we've got all night to figure out whether you start tomorrow. You know, it doesn't mean because you get there, you have to start tomorrow. Let's get you there. And then we can kind of take a breath, see what's going on. And so if we can cross that line and not get time cut, Mm. that buys us so much time in the evening to kind of step back, treat some wounds, get some physio work done, some chiro, even reassess the next morning, you know, get on the bike for a little warm up. Can you handle the bike okay? Do you feel okay on it? And take the start line. And mm. even once you take the start line, I mean, if you get 20K in and it's not happening, then pull, out. pull the plug. Yeah. No, nobody's going to be mad at you at that point because you certainly gave it your best. So I try to take a little bit less of a defined approach, as in the decision has to be made now, but take it instead as is it smart and safe to like push it out a little bit, mm. buy us some time, take this little by little. Because... I've also seen a number of times where guys have pulled the plug either in a race or right afterwards, like I'm not starting tomorrow, like they start packing up their stuff and the next day, like, actually, I don't feel that bad, Mm. you know, and that's awful for everybody involved. You guys don't like that when that happens. No, I was
0: about to say that's, that's probably just really good to hear that. Um, And I know that fact myself, but even in the moment, it's very difficult to see that far ahead. Um, You're feeling the pain, you're, you quite often when those crashes, this is personally for me, when I think about those crashes, not many of them happen when you're really sort of comfortable in the race. They're at a pointy end, you're really on the limit you just, and you, you hit the ground everything just comes to the forefront. The pain, you're out of breath from the race and everything and you're just like, oh, "I'm out. let me out of this. But sure. when the dust settles and for instance, you get to the hotel that night, you're like, oh, geez, I'm glad I'm still in the race because I want to go on. The worst thing would be God damn it, I didn't push on. Um, yeah. What I wanted to ask you there was, is there any benefit to actually riding, riding it out? You know how there's this sort of myth, I guess, like, yeah,
2: you ride it out, you keep it moving, you know, you you loosen it up. Is, is that actually work? I think so. I mean, I don't know of any scientific studies that address this. I'm not sure how you would. You mm. Take 20 riders and take half of them and throw them on the ground and <laughs> put them back on a bike. You couldn't do it ethically. But it kind of makes sense that the, the movement is going to be good for the muscles and tendons, right? Just to kind of cycling is great for that. You know, running is very impactful. If you say, "I'll oh, just run to the finish. Like that can be a little harder if you, but if you can get on the bike and kind of easy spin and still make the time cut, that's a pretty therapeutic movement. And in addition to the biomechanical, like moving of the muscles and tendons and joints, you've also got increased blood flow and your, your increased lymphatic flow. And that's what gets rid of swelling inflammatory uh, cells that kind of build up like it just keeps things moving along and so i think it's reasonable to expect that that is a very beneficial thing in some situations if it's if it's appropriate to do to hop back on spend for 10k 100k whatever it is but get things moving
0: Getting back to now to the hotel, we've all we've all got back to the hotel. And this is not necessarily all to do with crashes, but there's a big part of that. You've had a fall, maybe you haven't sure. got gravel rash, you've just got aches and pains. But also we've got aches and pains from just riding the bikes in terms of physical. What's your approach and how do you fit into that mould with recovery? Um, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, ice bath cooling, opposed to, say, taking yeah. an anti-inflammatory tablet, something I've moved away from Early in my career, I just sort of thought, oh, you just gotta have a tablet to fix something. But then I've realized that, you know, hang on, there's a better way to do this. What's what's your idea once we get back to
2: the hotel and addressing this? Yeah, that's great insight. Um, The anti-inflammatories and medications that we have serve a purpose, but a lot of them have a downside as well. And we wanna balance that. If there's a way to get the same beneficial uh, recovery from ice baths, massage, dietary interventions, and, and do all that without pharmacologics, then that's typically a better way to go. Um, but I mean, there is a role for the anti-inflammatories as well. It's just knowing when to use them. So a lot of times it is, you know, in this scenario, we've got the rider bandaged up, cleaned, everything on the bus. So they're gonna go for massage. They're gonna go, you know, for dinner, they're gonna rest in the bed. Um, you know, and, and by rest, I mean like between massage and dinner, you guys. Basically, if, if you're not on the massage table, you're in bed, feet propped up, you know, hanging out, getting ready for the next day. So I'll often try to come around probably after massage, before dinner, check on whoever's injured, see if they need, you know, we'll assess medication needs, things like that. Uh, we'll probably try to delay those until bedtime. Mm-hmm. You know, Medication maybe to help you sleep, uh, like an anti-inflammatory uh, to just help with the pain or, or paracetamol, Tylenol to keep the pain level down to help you sleep. Um, but assess that as we need to. I'm involved in a lot of the like the nutritional components and even talking with the physios, the chiros, the soigneurs who are working on you guys, but that's often behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe maybe a soigneur works on you and I'll afterwards go by and be like, you know, how did this feel? How was that? How are they doing with this? We help put together recovery protocols for the Soigneurs to implement oftentimes the doctors are talking with the chefs on what might be an appropriate meal plan. Not always, because our our chefs are fantastic, but Mm -hmm. high level, we're kind of involved in all that. Not necessarily overseeing it, but more like a team member, I guess. Thinking back now, and this is maybe a little bit outside of
0: um, crashes per se, but I'm thinking about now, back in the hotels recovering 15 years ago, before I was racing and before you were a doctor, but I guess you've heard stories or you may know what it was like or can think about what it was like. What do you think has really changed over the last 15 years when it comes to preparing riders, making sure they're recovered? I think even in my career, there was a big push on oral vitamins early on in my career and which has completely drifted away now. And to be honest, I think back then and how many vitamins supposedly I was helping me, I was just swallowing pills. And actually in the end, I was like, my bloody livers can't take any more of this, you know, like... That was a, an idea because once the um, intravenous stuff was drifted away, there was like, well, let's try and have it orally. And then now we've almost gone back to a, a wholesome sort of way of eating. Is that something you've seen happen over the
2: last 15 years? What do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the no needles policy and the, the no IVs for recovery, that started on our team. Hmm. Um, and, and now is an International Olympic Committee rule. I mean, it made its way up to the UCI and then the IOC and it's kind of is something that started here which i didn't start i I came in as that was getting started but i think the team can be really proud of that because the science shows that those intravenous recovery treatments are just totally unnecessary they're not helpful um we're not talking about sorry we're not talking about actual
0: illegal doping here we're just talking about simple recovery yes which might be what right
2: saline um, saline some vitamins b vitamins you know kind of a what we call a banana bag because it looks yellow once you add in all the vitamins. <laughs> um, you know, something like that, totally benign from a, from a doping standpoint, certainly not pushing any of those boundaries, but also could be kind of an open door for some of those things. Sure. You know, if you get used to having an IV after every, uh, after every stage, then it's easy for either a, a nefarious doctor to put something in there um, that you don't know about or for it just to become kind of a snowball. Well, why don't we add a little of this or a little of that? You're doing it anyway. And what we found or what science showed is that even the simple saline and vitamins really wasn't necessary for recovery. You know, If you're truly dehydrated to the point where you might need to go to the hospital, yes, but just day to day, we don't need it. So I think you're right. There was a response to that that was, well, let's see how much we can take orally. Mm. And that was misguided, right? I mean, that, that also isn't necessary. What we've kind of landed on that you alluded to is this, this realization that the foundational principles of, of diet and, and sleep and nutrient mm. timing and those things, those can make a big difference. Um, and there's certainly nothing sinister in any of that. It's, it's just science and figuring out you know, when to eat what and what you should be eating to recover, what type of recovery modalities are helpful, whether that's massage, ice, foam rolling, compression, um, and really, optimizing those things as a, as a, besides going to IV therapies and medicines.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, and I think just listening to you talk, then I think there was a, a massive placebo type effect, which still would be exist now with certain things. But For I, sure. I think back if I wasn't having all those vitamins, or I can imagine back in the time if you weren't having that intravenous injection, you know, like you just said, then there wasn't much benefit in it. But psychologically, you thought, well. I'm good now. I'm going to be good. And yeah. it's funny how it's drifted out now. And we've actually just got back to natural things. And and maybe I am getting a little bit too caught up in the whole sleep aids. And something that I do as well now is try not to check those things before the race. Because you can psychologically get caught up in that now if I haven't had a good sleep. I know how important yeah. it is and I'm seeing this data now, which can psychologically inhibit my performance.
2: Yeah, I think the, you know, we partnered with WHOOP this year, the team, and we're able to see that sleep data every day. And I think that's, that's fantastic. And that data is very usable in lots of scenarios. Race morning is not that usable. If you wake up with a poor recovery and a poor, poor overnight sleep, You still got to race and you're still expected to do just as well. So I think the take home in those scenarios are it's really important to look at trends. Not one night here and there, but look at trends. And even during a stage race, one of the things that uh, I've seen with, with some of you guys in the past is I won't worry about one night of sleep that's poor, and sometimes not even two. But if we start to see a trend toward three or more, I'll go talk to a rider and say, hey, what's going on? Are you watching movies late? Are you uh, having difficulty sleeping? Are you eating too much right before bedtime? Are you not eating enough? Like if we kind of attack some of that and add, like start the trend going back the other way, you add 30 minutes of sleep here, 45 there, it's actionable data during a race, but with a bigger picture, not just for that one day and that, that I found to be useful.
0: That's, That's what I was about to say. For me, it's become a really good training tool because I can control that stuff outside of the race. Um, and it's been a really good data um, recording system in a race, like I said, because a lot of that stuff you can't control to a degree. So it's been great to look at that stuff post-race and then go, okay, how can I fix that in training now? I've just got a couple questions left for you now. One that's very current. What do you think the impact of COVID will have on the world tour racing? And what what's the impact it's having already now with the protocols? And what do you see the future? I mean, it's very hard to predict, but you're going to have a much better idea of that than you know the rest of us GOMADs out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is hard to predict. I've been really impressed with how well cycling has done so far, pulling off these races, maintaining healthy riders and staff in the race. So kudos to the sport. It, I, I'll be... Frank, that they've done better than I thought they would. Mm. Um, it's a difficult thing to navigate. I'm not quite sure how it's going to look next year. I imagine a good portion of these regulations will carry over. Maybe the testing, certainly the sanitary regulations. Um, I think we'll see face coverings, you know, masks around for a while, at least until there's a, a widespread vaccine, I would think. With that, there's going to be required distancing from the fans. Things are just gonna feel different, I would guess for another 18 months or more. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not gonna be slowly moving back towards some semblance of normal. I also think whatever normal we arrive at is gonna be different than what we're used to. Mm. I don't know, I think it will be pretty impactful. We're also seeing just with the financing of teams and the, the companies that support cycling, because of the way cycling has built its financial structure, Teams are totally reliant on outside sponsors. That's really difficult for a lot of teams at this point because those sponsors are big companies who are often taking financial hits in their in their year. And if you look at cycling as a fairly discretionary marketing expenditure, it's potentially one that gets mixed pretty quickly in the rebudgeting. Yeah. So, you know, I hope that we don't see that as a widespread Issue in cycling, but it's certainly something we have to we have to consider. I think um, yeah,
0: what you said there is that we'll get used to um well there will be a, a new norm, and I think we'll be used to that by the time it happens, and you will have to literally go, Well, what was it like before? Because it'll be a slow progression. And even like this year's calendar now, it's sort of in a weird way feels normal all of a sudden, you know? Like when yeah. I when I saw this on paper, I was like, this is gonna be insane, and it is insane. But it's weird how yeah. normal it's become very quickly.
2: Well, I think our, our pendulum swung so far the other way during lockdowns and quarantines that to come back out, anything that we're able to pull off in, in cycling or even just in day-to-day life, you know, going to the market, feels normal because there was a period of time where we couldn't do any of it. Mm. And so, you know, And I don't think that's bad necessarily. It's just it maybe even helps ease the transition. I also don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think... You know we've come out of every pandemic in the past and we'll come out of this one it just remains to be seen kind of how that how that looks but I have I have every every expectation that in five or ten years we'll be at a very regularly functioning functioning new normal it won't look like it did five years ago but like we'll just be taken right along in some in some manner but it's gonna be a bump in the road between now and then
0: I've got a juicy question for you to finish on saddle sores this is probably the most common problem i guess for every cyclist out there and the most maybe unspoken thing is that everyone has their own little saddle sore they're very different very different things how much experience have you had to do with them Um, and what is your general advice you can
2: give with saddle sores lots of experience with saddle sores (laughs) it's it's one of those things as you say a rider will often come up and be like how Doc, I've got a question for you. Kind of quietly, like let's step to the side. And I was like, man, I've probably dealt with this three times today already. Right? <laughs> like it's not, it's not a big deal, and it's common. Um, not that frequently, but you know, it's it yeah. it definitely comes up, and even in the recreational community. Yeah. Um, you know. I'd say probably even more so than you guys. Even though your time on the bike is so much greater, a lot of recreational cyclists, when they bump their mileage just a little bit, will suffer because they have they're not used to it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the, their positioning's off, or just they're not as tough down there. For exactly, you know, but, of, they haven't got a of time in the saddle. Yeah, but they're not yeah. leathered up yet. So it's it's really common. I think the best advice is right up front when it starts to present. Like you very, you can kind of tell something's brewing and it's painful, maybe there's a little bump. If you're able to take the time off, so obviously not in a race, but in a training period, if you can take a day, two days off and just kind of let it rest, often that's all it needs, Hmm. right? Just give it a little time. So that's typically the first thing I'll recommend to you guys is soap and water, keep it clean, maybe a little bit of like very, very thin antibiotic cream or ointment. Um, You don't want to go too thick because you don't want Clog things up again, um, just real thin, and then let it air out. So, you know, loose fitting shorts, stay off the bike for a couple of days, and you'll probably be just fine. Don't when it gets beyond that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, don't go squeezing yeah. it. Don't go get that pus out.
2: Don't, don't do it. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to hold like a warm cloth to it or something, but you don't want to just squeeze it. Uh, <laughs> and typically early on, it's just red. Yeah. Right? Like it's just kind of red, irritated. And that's when you want to catch it before it turns to, a, to have that, that pus pocket. If it starts to go beyond that, then a little bit of hydrocortisone cream or a steroid cream can be helpful. Again, when it's just red, not you know, if it's massively infected, don't put steroid on it. It'll make it much worse. Um, but if it's just irritated, kind of the early stages, a little bit of steroid cream, and again, staying off the bike if possible is, is the best thing for it. Occasionally, we've got to open them up and drain them. Mm. I've only done that two or three times in my 10 or 11 years with the team, but it does happen and it's not fun for anyone involved.
0: What happens then though? Once you, then then you've just got a small cut there and then they have to ride on. Like I've obviously had many a cuts there, but they've just happened because I'm riding, um, not necessarily because I've had to have it drained. Is it is it dangerous then to go riding or is it less painful?
2: What's the experience there? Yeah, typically if it's been opened, I will recommend the rider not not ride like it's time to just come off the bike um there's been one case i can think of where we opened it and let the guy keep going to finish i think two days of a grand tour like it was almost done and we just kept a close eye on it antibiotics all that stuff Uh, but typically if we've opened it up it's it's game over
0: well mate that was very juicy and i hope that didn't gross too many people out we've got a ton of questions that are coming and i haven't had a chance to answer all of those but it's been great to sort of pick your brain and Give a little insight to what your day-to-day life is, apart from some little tips and tips the tricks of the trade there as well. I, want, I forgot to mention the actual name of your podcast at the start of the podcast, The Podium. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that so everyone can get across there and listen to that? Because I really highly recommend that to everyone who's listening here. Kevin does a fantastic job there. I've used it a lot for my own hacks. And it also appeals to everyone from
2: all different levels of cycling. So tell us a little bit about that before we sign off, mate. Yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Yeah, it's called The Podium. Um, My practice is Podium Sports Medicine, which is why we we moved to that name. Um, And yeah, we're two seasons in, about to launch our third season. And in each episode, we delve into a different topic around performance from different supplements to training strategies. We do some on sleep recovery. Uh, So it's 45 minutes to an hour. Um, Not too deep a dive into topics, but scientific without being overwhelming and hopefully give everybody some actionable things they can do to to improve what they do day to day
0: yeah great mate well thanks very much for coming on life in the peloton and i hope to uh catch up with you soon i can't imagine we're going to see each other this year but um i guess until until then mate
2: hopefully soon i've got my fingers crossed for a for a march ride in girona a little coffee ride with you and uh I'll keep my eye on that. Sounds great. Thanks, mate. Awesome. Thanks, Mitch. Well,
0: there we have it. Dr. Kevin Sprouse, I think he gave us a pretty good insight there to a lot of things, especially saddle sores. I hope it didn't get a bit too gruesome there for everyone at the end, but I was like, that was the most commonly asked question and it's a big problem that I have myself, so I was like, well let's go there let's get right into it what did you think of the juicy stuff uh there lionel
1: well i'm i'm a bit squeamish <laughs> i must admit and um I, i'm listening to the listening to the talk about the riders having to scrub out their own oh, yeah. wounds i have kind of heard a few stories about that before and and just uh, yeah the, the 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 nightmare of not doing it properly and then having having to get the doctor or a soigneur to do it um yeah, not uh, well. It's, it's one of the occupational hazards, isn't it? The road rash, it's got to be cleaned out properly. Otherwise, uh, you know, all, all manner of infections could take hold, couldn't they?
0: Exactly, and it's a common thing. Like we have it so often. Like I said, every time I crash, you've got you're very, very rare not to have gravel rash when you crash. And you learn very quickly that it's best to do it yourself at your own pace, your own um, pressure, because once those doctors get in it, they obviously can't feel the pain. So they're like, I'll just do what I need to do to clean it out. And it is hell. So, yes, it was um, a nice little insight there to what really needs to get done, because I'm sure a lot of people out there are going through those situations themselves as well.
1: Yeah, the other thing that struck me listening to um, Doctor Kevin, um, as I, as I now think of him, um, talking about uh, about the, the the job and particularly being in the team car and uh, when when crashes happen, it really struck me. Just you know how important it is to be a, a calm, collected person, and I suppose the medical profession does attract, or you know, people who are kind of calm and methodical and logical would gradu- graduate towards that kind of profession uh, obviously you know there's a, an awful lot more to it than that the all of the medical knowledge and study and everything gained over years of experience but just uh, hearing him talk about how a, a doctor or in an emergency room you know, they're told not to run when they hear a certain code because they don't want to arrive and uh, be working with a patient um, who might be in a pretty critical condition. They don't want to have their heart rate elevated and and be out of breath and kind of, you know, shaky, sweaty hands and all of that. And just that sort of logic and and the methodical way of working. And I really had a picture of, um, you know, that, well, we all know the kind of the chaos and danger and drama when, when, you know, there's a crash in the Peloton and all the team cars stop in in a hurry. And I just had this picture of kevin you know carefully folding up the foil around his sandwich and getting his bag ready and waiting for the mechanic to maybe give him a signal that that uh one of his riders needs some medical attention and and i just thought how far removed that is from my own temperament i'd be the complete opposite i'd be in a pa- i'd be in a total panic i'd be you know swinging the car door open and and, and causing more more harm than good and I, I found that a real kind of interesting uh insight and and i guess. You know, when you've hit the ground, Mitch, it's not something that the riders like to dwell on too much. But, you know, that gives you a real shot of adrenaline, doesn't it? And and you kind of, you know, heck, where am I? And you just need that calm, reassuring presence around you. I'm sure it's really reassuring.
0: It is. It really is. Because you, you are quite aggressive. Well, I get quite aggressive, you know, get me on the bike, I need to get back in, and they just, just the, they don't necessarily need to say anything, but just the calmness washes over you when you see them not reacting to any of that. They don't get emotional back at you, like, oh, calm down, they just, that's all right, that's all right, and it's, it's very funny how quickly it washes over you. When you're on the ground, it does feel like forever, it really does feel like 10, 15 minutes, it's ultimately, it's one or two minutes at the most, Um, and if you don't have someone to calm you down in that moment and someone else who is ultimately taking that on board and getting more aggressive, things just spiral well out of control and that's definitely not what you need at that moment. So it was very nice to hear him say that. I would never really thought about it, but actually as soon as he said that, I was like, that's exactly right. And I spoke about Serge Nimke, our old team doctor. He was amazing at that and he he was the, the man on the scene for me at my crash at paris Bay. Um, And afterwards, it was with me in the hospital all through that very traumatic time. And it's very funny that I look back on that very fondly because of him. He made it so comfortable for me. He made everything feel okay and just took control. So it's a big responsibility these guys have, whether it's at the hospital, at the race side, or like he spoke about, you know, just talking to you, having another ear to listen to, opposed to a director. Um, You know, maybe you've got these concerns. And I like that he did also say that, I'm definitely not a pushover either. Um, Sometimes I might tell you, you know what? You've just got to push through that pain today
1: that's interesting i also thought it was interesting and i wanted to ask you mitch about the relationship between the riders and the doctors are there, have you ever been in a position where you've been able to talk to a doctor about something that that you maybe wouldn't want to um let your teammates or or, or sports directors know because i guess you know the sports directors are focused on the sporting performance they need everybody to be able to um you know to, to do the job on on the bike but you you know, there there might be a time where you don't necessarily want to let the sports director know that you you've got a little issue that you 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 that might be troubling you or might potentially hold you back.
0: Not exactly that. I can't remember off the top of my head me ever having to say that. Um, but one thing that I do use a lot of the team doctors for is just family needs, um, family questions. You know Whether it might be about my wife or my children, because we're living in a foreign country, it's not as easy just to go down to a normal GP and ask them and get that reassurance. You need to have someone who speaks English and understands exactly what you're talking about. And quite often than not, whether it's on a race or I might even just call them up and just ask a question before we then go to the hospital or whatever might need to be done, I just go... What do you think this is happening at home? And that has been an amazing thing throughout my career to have those doctors, whether that was back in Mitchelton or then recently in EF, you know, with English-speaking doctors that I really trust, that I really have a, a good understanding for that could give me advice on pretty much home matters or even just myself, you know. If, if something's happening to me that's not bike-related, sometimes it's a be embarrassing talking to someone else about it. So it's nice to um, talk to the doctor about those sort of things too.
1: And and lastly, um, one of the kind of big stories recently has been the issue of concussion, and certainly professional cycling is becoming more aware of the of the um, short, medium, and long-term dangers of of concussion and head injuries. It's something that sports like rugby and American football have had to confront as well. And uh, certainly, we saw during the Tour de France, Roman Bardet hit the ground hard and. Uh, it, finished the stage and then it turned out overnight that he had a small uh, bleed on the brain and even in this Giro d'Italia that we're watching now a your old teammate Mitch Peter Weening hit his head pretty hard in yesterday's stage and and pulled out um, today um now when you crash i mean as a rider what what what's your attitude you were saying that you you want to get straight back on the bike and, and get back into the race and obviously you know the the doctor has got a way up whether or not that's safe for you to continue
0: that's right and there's only, there's not a whole lot of time to do a concussion check on the side of the road or even an accurate one if there is one that you can do in a few seconds um You know, a a good example for me, and I've been a little bit more aware of concussions since having pretty heavy brain trauma myself early in my career, that I was just a bit more aware of it and that I understand the consequences of this. And a few years ago in Milan San Remo, I crashed in the feed zone, and Taylor Finney was right next to me when I crashed, and I smacked down on my head, the helmet was broken. um, And we naturally got on the bike, pushed on, went over the, the hill, and down onto the onto the beach heading towards you know the finish and taylor had the 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 knowledge to just go to me i'm just going to ask you a few questions here because i saw how you crashed and he did a mini concussion test on the road and he just goes i don't think everything's right here and he went back to the team I was like, push on, I'm just going to push on, I'm fine, I'm fine. He went back to the team and the team actually instructed me then to stop at the second feed zone. They said, there's no point in going on here, we're not going to gain anything, it doesn't seem like you're 100% right and so what I loved about that was just that awareness from another teammate because I think, like you said, on the side of the road in that crash, there's not enough time but if your teammates are aware what's going on and they can assess how you're riding or if you're a little bit out of sink or out of tune or doing something odd than you normally are I think maybe it's best to step off the bike immediately at that point um
1: and did you did you have a concussion check afterwards, or did you you know did you wake up the next day feeling feeling okay? What was the upshot of that?
0: I didn't actually have a concussion check afterwards. Um, I flew back and I didn't feel odd. Um, that was also the next thing I was checked on by the team doctors. They gave me a call the next day and ran through some things. I didn't have any symptoms at that point. That's not to say they mightn't have had something minor, um, but I think at that point like we said, I wasn't going to gain anything in that race. I'd sort of lost a bit of confidence. Once that thought had drifted into my head, I was just sort of following the wheels at the back, and I wasn't going to be much of a help to the to bun- to the to the team anyway. So we weighed that up and said, he's not really going to be helping the team. Potentially, he could have a concussion. Let's just call it quits at this feed zone. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but what I'm sort of trying to get at is just this awareness of what can happen that the riders need to have an awareness themselves, but also of teammates of what happened in that crash? Is there something odd with this guy going on that he doesn't realize, even whether it's talking to them or the way they're riding, and just notifying them or someone else who can make them stop the race?
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, it's certainly something that I'm. I'm sure, you know, riders. Are, you know, in the cold light of day, they would want a teammate or just a an, any rider in the bunch to to look out for their their best um, interest. But of course, when sometimes you're the you're the least equipped to make the 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 call on something like that, especially you know if you're the one that's that's um, that's hit your head. And and you know, the instinct is to carry on in the race.
0: Totally, and that's just the, you know, the the. You- the competition side of you just going, I'm okay, I'm okay. And you can't see any, inju- any any injuries on your leg or on your arm. It's just inside your head. So you think everything's okay. And that's the the most common problem with concussions, I think. And even in the recovery process, I experienced that myself. You think, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. But actually it takes a lot longer than, um, than you think. I want to also speak about what's coming up on Life in the Peloton. Our first lot of caps sold out in about five minutes. I've finally organized some more caskets. They're gonna go live on Friday. So hang in there after much demand and after some slow process in Italy, they've arrived. So thanks everyone for hanging in there. And it sounds like everyone is eager to go. I'm pretty sure there's gonna be enough for everyone. Well, I hope so this time. So hang in there for next Friday. And guys, until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.